Welcome back to Streamageddon, the podcast where we try to watch everything the streaming universe has to offer. Uh, reboots, deboots, uh, revivals, and original series, but I don't think there are that many of those anymore. They're mostly reboots, deboots, revivals, prequels, sequels, threequels. Uh, and uh, this week... Oh, I'm sorry. Hi, my name's Chris Barlow. I'm the host of this show, and I'm joined across the internet by Diane Nora. Diane, how are you doing? Uh, I'm just steamrolling right into the show, apparently. I love that. Let's let's cut to the chase. Right, and the chase is we are reviewing a show called Reboot that is not a reboot, but an original show about a reboot of a show. And then that show is on Hulu, and this actual show is also on Hulu. It's kind of meta. Just gonna meta warning. Spoiler warning later, meta warning right now. It sure is. And uh, yeah, a, a show about a reboot of a show about a reboot. It's so great. I hope you love uh, real inside baseball Hollywood humor because that is what you're coming to this show for. But this show, the podcast you are listening to right now, is about so much more than that. This is the podcast where we talk about everything going on in the streaming universe. And we're going to start this week with some follow-up. We just did an episode a week ago. We've moved to Tuesdays. It's very exciting. And we did our first Tuesday episode in a hurry so we could recap the season premiere of Saturday Night Live. Uh, That was a lot of fun to do. And there's been a little bit of a development about one thing we talked about, in particular, the concept of sponsored sketches, which is actually a little more controversial in the SNL uh, universe than I realized. They are more defensive about this than I expected. Uh, We have mentioned two sketches in particular, the Charmin Bears sketch for reasons that seem incredibly obvious when you just say the name of the sketch, and a McDonald's sketch later in the episode. But the Charmin sketch got a lot of attention because if you were watching SNL live uh, on Peacock, not on NBC it turns out, but live on Peacock during the uh, original broadcast, that sketch was immediately followed by a Charmin commercial featuring the actual Charmin bears. And so people just assumed this must be a deliberate choice. SNL and, and NBC say no, and we have a link from Variety with their statement. I I am I I don't believe them. I'm going to just say it. I'm a I'm a Charmin Bears truther now. <laughs> I also I don't get why they would lie about it though. That's the only the only reason that I think they may be telling the truth is just because it seems like such a strange thing to lie about. We know that they do these kinds of promoted sketches we know that they've timed them before with real commercials yeah so there's an example in this story they did one with american express in 2015 when american express found out they were going to be the subject of a a sketch they asked to move their ad to be right after that sketch and it was not a big deal then so I, i you know to your point they Maybe they are telling the truth. We also know that for the past uh, about six years, they've been taking some kind of uh, form of corporate product placement money that they are very cagey about in order to reduce the number of ad breaks in the show, which serves a purpose to the viewer. So I also want to point out that the goal there is more content for the viewer, fewer ad breaks in the show. And that is something that has a good for the consumer. It's not just about sneaking in more ad revenue. Uh, But they're so cagey about when they do it because I think they don't want people to, uh, I don't know. To be honest, I don't know why they're so cagey about it. I think that there can be a lot of um, pride in comedy about being anti-establishment and nothing (laughs) is more establishment than corporate sponsorship. But 
at the same time, NBC needs to make money. We all know that. Um, it, yeah, it, it is weird that they're that they're cagey about it. You know, but that I, I also understand from another angle, if they were super transparent about it, people might dismiss those sketches or tune out of them completely. I don't know. So there, there, I can see that there are probably some very good arguments for why they are cagey. But I wish they were maybe a little more transparent about those arguments, because instead they come off as saying, like, we would never. And it's like, well, no, we know you sort of do. Why don't you just be a little more clear about the boundaries of that? But again, there's probably a whole bunch of legal reasons that that is a terrible idea. And that's why we are podcasters and not lawyers. Uh, But you know a place where a bunch of lawyers might, I don't know, pretty soon get involved? Peacock. Peacock. We're just always doing follow-up on Peacock. Peacock now, the streaming home of Next Day Saturday Night Live, and live Saturday Night Live, uh, to that point in the last story. But uh, Peacock has some big, big news that they are just so excited to share that they sent the CEO of NBC Universal to do a hard-hitting interview on CNBC. Real good choice there, guys. <laughs> Keeping it in the family. Uh Yes, so Jeff Shell came on CNBC to announce that they have 2 million pieces of great news, 2 million new subscribers to Peacock. That's so exciting. Paid subscribers, 2 million new paid subscribers to Peacock. The ones that really count. It's true. And this is big news because Peacock has been stalled at 13 million paid subscribers for all of 2022. They had the Super Bowl, the Olympics. They had all these big things, and they could not move the needle from 13 million paid subscribers. But somehow, in Q3 2022, maybe it was the resort got them up to 15 million. It must have been the resort. That's what I choose to believe. I mean, the thing is that 15 million still isn't a lot. It's not great. No. Not to rain on Peacock's parade. Never. Never. Honestly, I'm going to rain on a different part of the parade. Uh, You know, NBCU CEO Jeff Schell said this on that CNBC interview. He said, as of this quarter, we have 30 million active accounts that are watching us monthly. Monthly. Mm -hmm. That word, that choice, it's like, sounds kind of good until you hear monthly and you go, okay, so are these people who are tuning in for like one NFL game on Peacock a month because it's the only way to watch that one game? That's not amazing. It's not. It's just not. What's going to happen to Peacock? I hope it sticks around and grows because I do enjoy some of the content. I do, too. And they have ambitions. Uh, Again, CEO Jeff Schell, love this guy. He also was asked how they feel about Hulu. And he said, quote, we, like a lot of other people, would want to own Hulu. Which I just love the, yeah, I would like to own Hulu as well. That's correct, Jeff. Who wouldn't like to own Hulu? Streamageddon's own streaming service, Hulu. <laughs> That's correct. Our, our, our officially branded streaming service. Uh, he's not going to own Hulu, and he admitted that as much. He literally said, it's not what we anticipate happening. <laughs> Which is, that's a good, good guess, Jeff. I don't think you're going to own Hulu. But poor Peacock... You I know. know. You have a streaming service at home. You it's, don't need to go buy Hulu. It's literally the bad boyfriend looking back meme. We have it Jeff is. Shell looking back at Hulu going, mm, I would love that. It reminds me of me with my very healthy groceries stopping at a taco truck. 
That's right. That's right. We we all Hulu is our our taco truck of streaming services. Everyone loves it, but financially, we're not sure how they're going to stay afloat, and we're pretty sure they're going to get bought out by their uh, taco parent, Taco Daddy, Disney. <laughs> nobody loves Peacock. So sad. And the nobody loves Peacock news continues because there was another CNBC report, this one a little less flattering, where uh, it turns out Peacock has been going to other streaming services asking, excuse me, sir, would you like to bundle? Please, please, could you be my bundle? It's not just that they've been going to other services asking to bundle. It's the quality of the places they've been approaching AMC Plus was like, nah. Stars. Aww. Stars said no. What? How, how, what is, how do you make stars look worse? I don't know. BritBox wasn't taking it. I mean, that's, that's rough. That's really rough. Yeah, and apparently they did ask the real streamers, HBO Max, Paramount Plus. They got laughed out the door at all of those places. No surprise there. But they are just so thirsty for a bundle. They want their own Disney, Hulu, ESPN Plus bundle, and it's just not happening. You know, I have decided I'm anti-bundle, and so I am glad Peacock is independent because bundles just make you pay for things you don't need. I do not need ESPN Plus. I never watch any content on it. Why, why, why am I paying for this? I also just think this is back to that question we've asked so many times recently of the hard bundle versus the soft bundle. Because in a way, Peacock is already sort of a bundle of weird stuff. You've got a ton of NBC Universal content, but also WWE and some random sports rights, including the upcoming World Cup. It is a real mishmash, whereas, like, I would never expect to see sports on Disney+, Plus. but with the Disney Soft Bundle, I can get my Disney+, Plus and my sports on ESPN together. Right. It is, it is a weird mishmash with some very cool originals, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I do think a lot of this might speak to Peacock has had trouble getting people to understand what is in Peacock and what the value of it is. And so they're trying to tack on some other identifiable thing to say, plus this other thing you understand. Right. Not a super big sign of confidence. But hey, I, you know, somebody at Peacock is being paid to investigate all the ways we could grow. And so they are doing their job. I hope it works. We're rooting for you, Peacock. I mean, Diane's not because she's anti-bundle, but in theory, we're rooting for you, Peacock. It's so true. I'm rooting for them to stick around. I am anti-bundle, and I'm not afraid to say it. Well, you know, another place that is uh, going through some growing pains, some struggles, is Comedy Central. And this is another juicy piece of follow-up from our last episode. We talked about the big news there. Trevor Noah is retiring from The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. And as we already knew, it was a surprise to most of the people he works with and works for. And now, with a new story in The Hollywood Reporter last week, we have even more details on that. And truly, his own producer didn't know. He went into that segment with, I I imagine, almost everyone in the room not knowing what he was about to say. And that, you know, is it really, I don't want to get super gossipy in a way, but that's a really interesting uh, situation for your lead talent to be in, where he he either made this decision uh, very, I don't want to say suddenly, but, but committed to it and wanted to keep it secret, or, there, or, or he didn't want it to get back to 
MTV Entertainment Group CEO Chris McCarthy, who is the subject of this Hollywood Reporter piece, really. It, the lead-in is Trevor Noah's departure, but this is really about what seems like a much bigger uh, situation at Comedy Central. Depending on what you know, depending on which source you look at in this article, it's either a very dire situation at Comedy Central or it's just a, a transition at Comedy Central. Right. Uh, it was surprising to me how little Chris McCarthy seems to care for television. That was a big takeaway. And again, you have to imagine the sources giving those anecdotes to The Hollywood Reporter Aren't happy. Have, yeah, they're not happy people. They have an agenda. But there was a really gross, gro- gross isn't the right word, a really telling anecdote about one of his first meetings with the, the like Comedy Central all hands, essentially, to introduce himself as their new boss. Because the boss of Comedy Central is the CEO of the MTV Entertainment Group. That's the boss of Comedy Central. Uh, and they asked him, uh, let's role play. Let's say you're Chris McCarthy. And I go, hey, Chris, what's your favorite TV show? Uh... I like to watch CNN. That was the wrong answer, Chris. <laughs> and apparently that's what he said, which is, oh, that's challenging. Also because your your network doesn't own CNN. Paramount, Viacom, your parent at the time, they do not own. You just named a competitor who does news, which is absolutely not what you've been hired to do. You're head of the MTV Entertainment Group. It's also not a TV show. No, you know, like you he didn't pick even pick one. a show on CNN. If he was like, you know, I love the Situation Room. At, At least. least. Right. And there is a, you know, what's funny about that is if you'd said, OK, I love the Situation Room. It's like, OK, I know that you love Wolf Blitzer. Like, you love this talent. You love this personality. And one of the other through lines in this Hollywood Reporter article is that he let a lot of talent go and has not done the kind of glad-handing tour you're supposed to do when you take over somewhere that David Zaslav just did it at HBO and Mm -hmm. Warner Brothers. They're, you know, they're doing a lot of changes there. But David Zaslav made a point of going to all the important talent and saying, hi, I'm your new boss. I'm a friendly face. I swear. I promise. Uh, and Chris McCarthy apparently didn't really do that and instead canceled a bunch of things that were already supposed to be renewed, including Drunk History, which is a personal attack on me, and Tosh.0, which, okay. Uh, but he also canceled some uh, development deals, including a development deal with Paul Downs and Lucia Anello, who made Hacks. They, they, yeah. Hacks is on HBO Max. They are at HBO Max developing shows like Hacks because this man let them go. That does seem like a big error. On the other hand, I'm so glad that happened because I love hacks and I don't think it would be as magical at Comedy Central, nor I I just probably wouldn't see it. No, but he has been offloading a lot of talent and just wholesale shows to HBO Max. Uh, Southside, the other two, both shows that were originally on Comedy Central and he let them go to HBO Max. And again, just be clear. It's not like, oh, he let them go to their streamer, Paramount Plus. He let them go to Warner Brothers. He let them go to a completely different company. So it's not a it's not a simple like oh we're just shifting to streaming. He he doesn't want that kind of content in the Comedy Central brand anymore. Right, and they did mention that he uh, seemed interested in adult animation and had plans for like a Ren and Stimpy reboot, which uh, and a Daria reboot. And a new show from the creators of South Park. They did say basically his strategy is South Park. 
that and and in a way it's not a stupid strategy south park has endured the test of time on comedy central in so many ways and does show the enduring appeal of some adult animation but for all the south parks there are there are many many more examples of adult animation shows that do not stand the test of time and do not turn into mass hits agreed i think trey parker and matt stone that is a very smart bet and for me uh they've made all kinds of things that are successful i think i think they're really talented even if i'm not much of a south park person and the south park people i know are dedicated they love it and it's been a good mover for paramount plus apparently they've been doing more south park content straight to paramount plus and that's been a good move i think diversifying the audience on paramount plus yeah Sure. I, they should have brought back Detroiters. <laughs> so many things that there. would save the network. <laughs> so you wonder just what are they doing? What is Chris McCarthy's strategy is what's coming into question here. And is he letting go of too many good things? Some maybe make sense, but it is a lot when you stack it up. And obviously some very disgruntled people called up the Hollywood reporter and said, we've stacked these up for you. Can we list them in a way that makes it sound really bad for Chris McCarthy? And it does. And it does. He does come off looking a little incompetent uh, in that article. Not great. Not great. And that's not the only challenge that the Paramount comedy team is facing, whoever is the king of comedy at Paramount, because Paramount, of course, owns the MTV Entertainment Group that, of course, owns Comedy Central. Paramount also owns CBS because they've all remerged into a big happy family. And uh, that means Trevor Noah is not the only person Uh, leaving the Paramount late night family. I had not thought about this in this way, but there's a great story in Variety. Short and sweet just points out that uh, Paramount actually does think of the late show, the late late show, and the daily show as sort of a trifecta of late night. And even though one of them is on cable far, far away from the other two, all three of them actually do have some synergy, especially in like uh, demographics and ad sales. It's all about the money. And so there was an example where they all coordinated and did an advertorial sketch, basically a sketch that was an ad for a company all on the same night. I had no idea that they'd done that. And See, also, SNL, everyone does it. You can admit it when you do it. I don't know. Uh, but, but they've done things like that before, and they found it to be a really effective way to like kind of market their uh, youthful target demo that they're aiming for with Late Night, and then to attack them from all angles, because you've got you know the dads who watch Colbert, and you've got the kids who watch Trevor. I don't know how many of them are watching him linear on cable at 11 p.m. at night, but that's the idea. And so they, they think of this as like a united front, and they're losing not just Trevor, but James Corden stepping down. And obviously right. Colbert is the crown jewel of the three, uh, I'm sure in terms of ad sales too, but it's a bigger shakeup than just one one late-night show. Yeah, that's a, those are some very big shoes to fill. And also James Corden. And there we go. Uh, but before we move on to our next segment, I do want to touch on one more piece of follow-up. Uh, so much follow-up this week. Uh, a little bit of follow-up about our friends at Wabro Disco. Because they are still canceling so very many things. That hasn't stopped. And it's uh, now moved on to the Adult Swim division. Adult Swim, of course, home of Rick and Morty. Much uh, popular adult animation 
and there's been a lot of anime on Adult Swim. And, that, uh, yeah, again, we've mentioned before we're not big anime uh, fans, but uh, I have associated Adult Swim with anime as a brand for many, many years. I've always known in their lineup is a decent amount of anime. And no more. Uh, Warner Brothers Discovery is here to say, no, 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 we're good. So they've removed uh, two anime shows from HBO Max, but uh, three more in addition to that have all been just kind of purged from the Adult Swim catalog. And the shows themselves are Blade Runner, Black Lotus, Fina, Pirate Princess, Shenmue, the animation, Laser Wolf, and Tigtone. None of which I've seen, but... I have heard of the Blade Runner show, Blade Runner Black Lotus. And that one, uh, you still should be able to watch on Crunchyroll, uh, which was owned by Warner Media. This is where I just found this story to be uh, one of those examples of all this corporate moving and shaking, let's say, merging, demerging, remerging, uh, has some weird side effects sometimes. And in this case, uh, all of these shows, or many of these shows, were co-productions between Adult Swim and Crunchyroll. Crunchyroll, a real popular streaming platform for anime specifically. And Crunchyroll was part of Warner Media. But then Warner Media sold off Crunchyroll to Sony... So now they're no longer under the same corporate roof and collaborating on these shows is no longer a priority for Warner. It was for Crunchyroll, but they got rid of Crunchyroll. Mm. Uh, I found this uh, quote from Jason DeMarco, who's the Adult Swim co-founder, really interesting. (laughs) He just tweeted, sorry, guys, this happened. I can't tell if that's like, Shows that he was truly very upset, you know, like so upset that he couldn't really articulate it. But uh, rough things, things seem rough at Adult Swim. Oh, boy. Good thing they've got Rick and Morty. That really is their saving grace right now. Yes, absolutely. But that's enough doom and gloom. Let's move on to a segment we have not done in a little while that's not doom and gloom. It's trick or treat. There's your spooky season reference for you because we are going to play everyone's favorite game. Renewed or canceled. This is some jazzy new theme music we have because this is the game where Diane is going to hear the title of a show and tell me, has it been renewed or is it canceled? That's what we do here on Renewed or Canceled. Now, I'm sure longtime viewers know we've played this before, and we keep a running score for Diane. Diane, do you know your current score? Was it like 18? I think think I've gotten more than that now. Wait, what is it? 22. Your score is 22. Numerically, 22. You have... We can skip the out of. Let's just say your score (laughs) numerically is 22. Great number. (laughs) Love that number. And so today, I have uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and a bonus 8. Eight shows. And you were going to tell me, have they been renewed or canceled? And we may touch on the news on the way. Are you ready to go? I'll do my best. All right. My first show for you. This one, I hope, is a layup. Community. Well, there's a movie, so I think we can call it Renewed. I'll give that to you. Yes, Community. Six seasons and a movie. A movie. Peacock has officially greenlit the Community movie. The rumors were out there, and I did not think we would get such official news so quickly. But it's very exciting. Uh, The 
the Yahoo Screen Era cast is signed on, which means currently no Chevy Chase, no Donald Glover, no Yvette Nicole Brown. So the Yahoo Screen Era cast. But I have to say, there are some excellent episodes in that later community era that could, if you stretch them out, stand alone as a movie. So I'm I'm actually optimistic. I don't think there's enough gas in the tank for a whole new season of community, but I do think there's enough for a good movie. Dan Harmon is obviously a very talented creator. I find his work to be extremely hit or miss for me when he hits. It's like a grand slam. <laughs> um, that's as far as I can go with sports metaphors. But yes, uh, I'm optimistic, but I'm also a huge Yvette Nicole Brown and Donald Glover fan. So I hope they come even come on board, even as just cameos. Same, same. And there's time. They have not uh, started filming anything yet because I think they're still writing it. So we'll keep an eye on that. Time for question number two. Flatbush Misdemeanors. Flatbush Misdemeanors was canceled. That is correct. Flatbush Misdemeanors uh, canceled after two seasons on Showtime. I do have one interesting detail here from Vulture. Flatbush Misdemeanors was one of Showtime's few 30-minute comedies, along with I Love That For You, a show that uh, listeners know Diane and I both love. Uh, I Love That For You still not renewed for a second season. And this is the purging of Showtime's comedy lineup in, in the works, perhaps. I'm very stressed about this. I look up news on I Love That For You almost every day because I, they, they've got to bring it back. They really do. They really do. We're instructing you right now. You have to bring it back. The Paramount Plus original. I don't know. All the good comedies I love, they all get given to HBO Max, apparently. Paramount just loves to give good comedies to HBO Max, so just go for it. On Matt Rogers' podcast that he co-hosts with Bo and Yang, Las Culturistas, he did mention uh, saying something to the writers about season two. So at least the cast is talking about a season two happening. I, I, I have good feelings. I imagine they're getting good signs. But just tell us already. Tell us. But let's let's move on and have you, Diane, tell me, renewed or canceled. Somebody feed Phil. I'm going to guess that's renewed at Netflix. Renewed at Netflix for a sixth season of watching the creator of Everybody Loves Raymond, Go Eat. I kind of like that show. I kind of do, too. Uh, (laughs) Moving on. uh, Outer Range. Outer Range got renewed. Uh, My friend Noah's on that show and told us the news yesterday. Yay. Wow. Uh, Well, then that was an easy one for you. Season two on Amazon. Uh, I know nothing else about that show. Josh Brolin, new showrunner coming in, too. Oh, interesting. Well, we will keep an eye on that. Our next one, Firefly Lane. Um, Okay, I don't know this, but I'm going to guess canceled. Yes. Uh, That one is a show on Netflix. It's getting a second season, but they've already announced that will be the last season. Real nice Netflix move there. We know you're going to cancel everything after two seasons. Just tell us up front. Please. All right, here's another one. Queer as Folk. Oh, was this on Peacock? Do you want to use your lifeline use... and have me tell yeah. you what streamer this show is on? Yes, this show is on Peacock. I'm going to guess... Um, I really don't know. Uh, canceled? I feel like with Peacock, canceled is your default choice, probably. Yeah. Uh, yes, after one season, the reboot of Queer as Folk already canceled. All right. 
here, not we're almost at the bonus question. The bonus question I'm excited about. But before we get to the bonus question, this one, I might be cheating a little bit, but tell me what you think when I say Armor Wars. Oh, I think uh, that this is that Don Cheadle thing. Yes, this was a, a Disney Plus original series, a Marvel Cinematic Universe series that has been, you know, gestating for a while. They've told us that it's on the roadmap, the whatever phase of the MCU we're in. Uh, Don Cheadle uh, finding the old Iron Man, Tony Stark weapons and tech that have fallen into like black market hands. And that was going to be a series and we were going to follow that that journey or those adventures. And then all of a sudden they're like, nope, it's a movie. And and as recently as like a month ago, they were still teasing it as a series. So it was a very abrupt change. And what's weird about it is it does not seem like there's been much of a creative shakeup. It's not like they ditched a bunch of writers or, or other creatives. It just seems like somebody went, nope, it's a movie. Someone who complains a lot that Disney Plus shows should have been movies. <laughs> I, maybe I they're this, getting this it. is maybe encouraging. Maybe that's the answer. Well, uh, Diane, you are having a perfect game here, which makes me very excited for this bonus question, because this bonus question, mm, a little tricky. I'm not I'm sure how you're going to answer it, okay? <laughs> here is your bonus question. Industry. Oh. Wait, I don't think they've said yet, have they? That's correct. Oh. Wow. Eight for eight, Diane. Way to I go. I like this show. Yes. I in- haven't watched the new season yet. Uh, I'm me, me part neither. of the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It might be why HBO has yet to make a decision. However, the showrunners have already started writing season three in anticipation of a renewal. And and I think it was getting enough good buzz in season two that it, it's probably going to get renewed. Uh, but it is it is interesting to see that the, the showrunners are like, uh, psst. We're already writing it if you want to call us and say that it's like a go. I want to hear some good news about industry. I want to hear some good news about I love that for you. Come on, execs. I hope we have more good news to share next time you play our favorite game, Renewed or Canceled. And with that, it's time for us to talk about this week's show. We'll be right back after a non-existent break to talk about Reboot. Yes, we are here this week to talk about a TV show about a TV show. Just love those. It's a series called Reboot on Hulu. We are going to be uh, discussing and spoiling episodes 1, 2, and 3 that all dropped together as a nice little package. Uh, This show comes from the creator of Modern Family, and we mentioned on a recent episode, and we'll uh, put the link back in the show notes, uh, he explained a little bit about his inspiration. And so I I just want to lay that out out again before we get started, because it set an expectation that the show meets in one way and then definitely does not meet in in another way. It goes in a direction I was not expecting. Uh, So he said that when he was still making Modern Family, uh, that was the time when the Roseanne series was rebooted on ABC. And if you don't remember, that reboot brought Roseanne Barr of Roseanne back uh, to network TV. And then Roseanne Barr of Roseanne did a bunch of things outside the show that, uh, you know, canceled her in an era when we didn't quite have the language for canceled her yet. But, But 
basically we canceled her for a while. And then uh, ABC went, okay, we can just do the show with everyone else. And they renamed it The Connors, and it still airs on ABC to this very day. And apparently Stephen Levitan, the creator of Modern Family, saw all of this happening and thought, that's so juicy, I would love to make a sitcom about it. And he assumed someone else would do that before he had the time to. But no, apparently only he thought that. And when I tell the story like that, I, I also am like, I wouldn't have thought that. I wouldn't have thought that either. And I don't really think that's what this show is about. No, me if neither. If it takes a turn and becomes that, I'm very concerned. But... Uh, yeah, I will. Honestly, I don't want the show to be about that any more than it already is. And and I agree with you. I don't really think that's what the show is about. It takes the, you know, the germ of the show is a reboot of an old series that is corny but beloved. And the, the reboot brings back these people who are of various degrees of washed up or they've just turned into extremely eccentric celebrities. Some spectrum of that. Uh, and the weird personalities that that brings together and the changes of, you know, the networks and the streaming, yada, yada. That's the germ of it, I guess. Yeah. And so I I love and hate this show. Say more. The things I love about it, I love so much. In some ways, I think the show was tailor-made for me. I love meta stuff. I love industry stuff. I am a sucker for the inside baseball stuff because I want to be playing that baseball. I have, you know, I just have a blast with it. And I work for a comedy writer who wrote TV, like classic TV sitcoms. Um, So, and and we have some of these conversations. There are a lot of moments where I'm like, I I said that last week. (laughs) while I'm watching this show. So it really, it it has an incredible cast who are killing it, but it's handling of gender, race, and issues around cancel culture, let's say, I am so far really not liking, and I'm concerned about where it's going to go in that direction, and I wish it would just get back to the really great stuff that it's doing so well. Yeah, I think that's a really nuanced take. And we we talked about this before recording. I watched mm-hmm. the show. I, I procrastinated until the very last minute and watched the show the night before we recorded. And um, because I'm trying to tweet less, I just live tweeted my reactions to Diane via text message. Apologies for that. But uh, we had a, a conversation about this. And I, I, what I think is more concerning as a piece of TV comedy is that their treatment of this woke stuff, this cancel culture stuff isn't funny. And, I agree. And as a counterpoint, after watching the three episodes of Reboot last night, I uh, rewarded myself by flipping to a different section of Hulu and watching the new episode of Abbott Elementary. And I was really reminded how Abbott Elementary, one of the core cast members, is like the walking, talking embodiment of woke humor, of look at this overly woke, overly sensitive, overly liberal, overly performative white guy. That is literally a stock character that they will play that joke over and over. And this week's episode of Abbott, like, totally played that joke. But the difference is it's funny and it's treated with a sense of uh, he's not wrong. He's just, you know, showboating. He's just playing it up. It's not saying, oh, these woke culturistas, they're all wrong. It's saying this guy, he's way too earnest about it. He's trying too hard. And sometimes that's endearing on Abbott Elementary, at least. But it made me think the real issue with those uh, jokes on Reboot is they're not funny. 
Agreed. And I will say a lot of the other jokes on the show are funny. Yes. Yes. And um, that's that's the thing is I'm laughing a lot through the show and the momentum from the funny parts carries you through. I had a really enjoyable time. And these episodes, it's a sitcom, but it's kind of uh, filmed and uh, edited like a prestige HBO sitcom. So each episode is a full 30 minutes. Uh, you will get ads if you watch on Hulu with ads like I did, but you don't get a ton, and the, the, the structure doesn't feel like a 23-minute network sitcom. The structure and the pace and the tone feel more like a 30-minute HBO Showtime uh, comedy. Uh, and so I, I was watching 90 straight minutes of this, and I have to say, like, I enjoyed it, and I didn't feel like it was dragging at any point. But as we talked about it, and then as I kind of really digested it afterwards, I had that same feeling of some of the stuff is working really really, really well. And then there's this second side of the story that's really mostly on the writer's room and focused on the relationship between the two showrunners that's not working as well and is increasingly seeming like it's not that uh, it, it, not that integrated with the other half of the show. They're very integrated in the pilot. And then in the second and third episodes, it almost feels like two different shows just kind of happening in parallel. Yeah. So on the one side, we have the actors, um, really stellar performances here. Judy Greer, Keegan-Michael Key, Johnny Knoxville, surprisingly great. Yes. I mean, actually, I shouldn't say surprising because I do love Jackass. Uh, (laughs) uh, Where is my shame? He's so great. He's they're all really well cast here, too, because like Johnny Knoxville is cast as this guy who was kind of like a shock jockey style comedian Mm -hmm. who was then a a character on this sitcom. The sitcom originally aired in like the early 2000s, like 2000, 2001. So very late 90s vibes. Uh, And then afterwards, he went back to comedy. Then you can tell he had like a drug problem, a drinking problem, a fighting problem. Then he went to jail for a while. Then he went back to comedy. There's some like Michael Richards vibes without the racism, you know? Yeah, it seems like he's been on and off the wagon a bunch and is now sober. Uh, but, but gets himself into trouble nonetheless. Yeah. And that's a really fun character and a great choice for Johnny Knoxville. Like he really chews the scenery in that role. He does. Yeah. And he's funny. He can act. He can do more than, um, you know, fall off of things, I guess. Uh, and I mean, for me, the reason I'm watching the show is Judy Greer and Keegan Michael Key. They're so good. They're so good. And they have a great tension uh, chemistry together. Because also, one of the plot points that I think is perfect for a comedy like this is that they're the husband and wife in the series, in the sitcom, and that during the course of the original series, they dated for a while. And then they had like a terrible breakup after the show ended which we find out is partly because Keegan-Michael Key's character, who was the dad of the the family on the show, he left the show to pursue a legitimate film career. And so part of the reason the show ended and part of the reason their relationship ended was because he wanted to do something better than the sitcom. And of course, that didn't go well for him and his career has gone nowhere. And that's part of the, the joke of that, too. Yes. The show doesn't acknowledge race very much or very well. One thing that they did handle well, I thought they had some clips of him auditioning for other parts. And it seemed like he was supposed to play some like 
gangster character in the first episode that he was auditioning for. Um, and that's like so not in his wheelhouse. He went to the Yale School of Drama. He has lunch at Joe Allen. He's a very type type of theater person uh, that is being asked to play roles that are totally wrong for him. And that is probably because he's black. Or, or he's certainly being limited by Hollywood because of that. Other than that, the show doesn't really acknowledge his race yet. Which would be okay if not for where the story goes. And I feel like uh, we have to explain the other half of the show to set that up, uh, I think, successfully. Because the other half are the writers. A spoiler. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and we're deep into spoiler territory now. Because the show starts by focusing on the writers. And specifically on Rachel Bloom's character, Hannah. And first of all, I think this is amazing character for Rachel Bloom. And she's killing it in the role. I, she's great. Yeah. The the character, the choices they have this character make, I have some questions about. But the show starts mm-hmm. with her in a pitch meeting at Hulu, at actual Hulu, uh, pitching the fake Hulu execs on her idea to reboot Step Right Up. But she's apparently like, uh, get, you know, her rise to getting this meeting has to do with some edgy indie film she made that has a name so v- vulgar, I'm not going to say it on the episode because then I'll have to mark it as explicit. So she comes in with this uh, seemingly reputation they tell us and then she wants to reboot this corny sitcom and everyone's like why why would you want to do that and she just you know she reads the room and goes oh because i'll do it edgy and subversive just like you want and so they green light it with really very little due diligence which i think is a joke on hulu i think uh Mm -hmm. because there are many good jokes on hulu and so they they spend the whole first episode teasing that she's getting the whole cast and they're all agreeing to do it and that there's something great about this script she wrote that's different than the original show. And Keegan-Michael Key mentions that there's a twist at the end that makes it feel like it's a real person instead of the, like, cardboard cutout father character he played on the original series. So they keep teasing, like, there's this twist at the end that's really dramatic and reveals something dark, a dark secret about Keegan-Michael Key's character. And so you're like, oh, okay. Uh, We don't know what that is for the whole duration of the pilot. And I, I keep... I wonder that during the pilot. Why are they teasing that? And what is her real motive here? And then she storms out because they bring in a different showrunner. And that different showrunner is the original showrunner of the original series, played by Paul Reiser. And we learn he's her father. And the twist she's written in the reboot pilot is that Keegan-Michael Key's character has a daughter who he abandoned And she comes back and confronts him. And what is interesting about this, structurally, is it was really well played because they revealed in a way where I didn't need to see that much of the actual script she wrote then. Once I understood what that twist was and how it was paralleling with her story and her actual life, that answered all of those structural questions for me in a way where I was like, oh, nice reveal on two fronts. However... However, there are some really questionable uh, choices here. For example, having the only black character on the show be a deadbeat dad. And they try to frame this through, well, Paul Reiser was the deadbeat dad that she is writing about. And the way they film that scene is very well well done. I, they, they visually really try to hammer home that this scene, which goes through a bunch of rewrites back and forth for all these sometimes funny, sometimes not so funny reasons about the woman they cast to play his daughter. She's from a uh, dating reality show show based on Bachelor in Paradise, basically, that also has a name so vile I can't say it on the podcast, which was a laugh out loud (laughs) moment in the episode. Um, But 
you know, they, they really want us to know, okay, no, these people, the two black people you're looking at talking about how he abandoned his daughter, they're stand-ins for these white people. So try not to think of it as racially loaded. But you can't not think of it as racially loaded. And in the universe of the show, somebody should have theoretically raised their hand to be like, is this, do we need to address this? Is this going to give us some blowback? You'd think the Hulu exec there, who is hilarious because she's a data uh, person who was acquired from like a tech startup that Disney bought. That's the joke there. And she got promoted to head of comedy. You would think she would be like, our our data says that this would be perceived as. There's just zero acknowledgement of it in a otherwise very savvy piece about the politics and the, the especially like, because it does address the woke stuff. You would think that they would have touched on it. I agree. And I I would think that Keegan-Michael Key's character would have brought it up exactly. and not been thrilled about it the way that he, I mean, he's thrilled to have a secret and you can tell he's one of those actors who wants some t- subtext. Um, so that makes sense, you know, but uh, yeah, it, it's very weird that they don't bring it up. Um, though, as you mentioned to me, and I completely agree, it was very funny that um, Keegan-Michael Key has a line that has clearly been written by Paul Reiser's character in which he says, I should have been a mensch. <laughs> right. And I laughed out loud at that moment. The, the thing is, in the moment, that scene was very well executed, very funny. But it does pose these questions of if the show is so savvy and it is in moments very, very savvy, how are you not catching that and at least using it as an opportunity for some observational comedy about the industry? Right. The other thing to me about the twist in that Rachel Bloom's character is Paul Reiser's daughter On the one hand, I really like that it gives their relationship some stakes. Um, It seems like a smart writing choice to me on that level. It also gives them a a background to draw on, which sometimes it's hard in a new show if all the characters are just meeting for the first time. You know, the, the relationships are just a little shallow, and it's more interesting when people have a backstory that you're trying to catch up on. But... It also makes what she's trying to do more of a I've got daddy issues thing instead of I have a new take on comedy material. I'm trying to do something new as a writer. It just makes me take her so much less seriously as a writer. And I find that really annoying. Another thing is that she twice in the first three episodes, she's threatened to quit the show or quit the show and then come back. And I just, why doesn't she want to do her job? Obviously, she would want to do her job. Nobody gets these jobs, even if their dad is. Right. Yeah. I understand why she quit in the pilot. And that was the the one time they were allowed to play that card. Because it happens in the pilot when they hire her father to be co-showrunner over her head. And that, in that moment, she quits. And then the cast because the cast loved her new script and the cast doesn't love Paul Reiser's ideas for a variety of reasons that are funny and on brand for the characters. So there is something good there, actually. They decide, no, we want her to come back and we also want him to stick around because he's our boss in some ways. Like, they sort of have Stockholm Syndrome towards Gordon, their original showrunner. But that's that's fine. He he is going to be there. The network has hired him. That That is not really negotiable, it seems. Uh, but they bring her back. They convince her it's worth doing, even when they realize that she has these daddy issues, which I wish they would spend more time bumping them against her. And there was some 
promise of that in that end of the pilot moment where they convince her to come back and then she reveals to them that he's her father and you can see on their faces a, a excellent scene with Keegan-Michael Key, Judy Greer, and Johnny Knoxville where the look on their faces all changes as they realize what they've just invited into their lives. And that is what I thought we would get more of in the uh, the twist, the daddy-daughter twist. And instead, the daddy-daughter stuff all stays in the writer's room side of the story for the most part. And then the actors have their own interpersonal drama between each other as actors. And some of those stories are funny. And the scene, the, I, I would say of those two paths, the path that I'm having most fun with is the actors on set, having goofy hijinks happen, having, you know, 20 years of interpersonal issues with each other. That is really working. The writer's part is not working as well, but I think it's uh, largely to do with the fact that it's it's happening in isolation from the rest of the the characters who are the stars of the show. The writers aren't really the stars. Like Rachel Bloom, Hannah, she is a, a star of the show, and Paul Reiser is sort of a co-star of the show, but the stars are the actors, and their stories are the A stories. And so it's weird. It's hard to it's hard to find the stakes. Uh, in the writer's room story, even though they gave us this really juicy relationship, it doesn't feel that uh, impactful. I think that they're going to unpack it more as they go on, but I have some real issues with the writer's room setup too. So as showrunner, uh, Hannah had hired um, three young writers uh, to create comedy with her. Um, She's hired a diverse group, um, and basically her dad comes in with his writers, who are um, three old Jewish writers. Septuagenarians. Yeah. 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 Um, and I do think they're funny. Like, yes. I, Fred I love them. Yeah. Fred Melamed. Oh, my gosh. Rose Abdu. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. At the same time, the conflict that they're setting up, I really don't like the way that they're treating the young writers, I'll say. Um, well, well, they're just making the young writers seem not funny. Unlike, yes. again, unlike uh, Chris Perfetti's character on Abbott Elementary, who is exactly in that same template of those young writers, this, you know, queer, over-eager, over-ally white guy, like, uh, uh, super not funny because he's super earnest, but... But there's something charming and goofy and endearing about him. And then these writers, mm -hmm. they're they're just kind of um, blank slates of uh, young stereotypes. Like they don't they don't yes. I don't understand how they, they all are told, you know, when they're introduced, they're like this one wrote for the Harvard Lampoon and this one did this. But I, none of them show any spark of personality in those scenes. And, and I do think this was on purpose because at the end of episode three, the old writers and the young writers bond over a funny physical comedy moment when uh, Hannah trips on a trash can. And you can tell, oh, now they're going to work together. Now they're going to have fun together. And then like the young gay writer, he cracks a like really saucy joke at the old Jewish lady and we're like oh they're so funny they all get along except none of these young writers were that funny up until this exact moment they showed none of this spark of funny human personality until the plot said well now that now they uh, have broken the ice and they all get along and they're all cracking jokes together and and I just found that that really strained credulity because it it made those characters less real at the expense of a plot point that 
you know, I see what they're doing, but that didn't feel earned. And there are so many better ways to have gotten there. Agreed. I also think this is just a problem with who they have writing the show. They need more black writers in the room. I I mean, in the The, the reboot reboot writer's room. room. (laughs) Uh, a, A friend of mine who's black said to me, after the the uh, trailer for this show came out, he was like, oh, God, why does Stephen Levitan think he knows what it's like for a young black woman to be in a predominantly white writer's room? I was like, that's a great question. And it doesn't look like he's hired anyone who knows that either. And if they do not correct that error, I think the show will be so much less good than it could be. And also kind of gross. I, there have been some major changes in comedy over the years. I think there is their right to acknowledge that there is a lot of political correctness that's being addressed in comedy and pop culture, perhaps as uh, wokeness, but that word has been just so overused as to have lost its meaning. At the same time, there's been uh, some changes in comedy about having less jokes in TV shows. And I think that they're trying to say that those two things are the same, that the reason that comedies don't have as many jokes anymore is that they're too worried about being politically correct. And that is just not true. That's just like ahistorical, and it really drives me crazy. I feel like the show that really made jokes die in comedy was Louie. There were whole episodes of Louis without jokes, and you don't need to revisit Louis because that guy sucks. But it's not that it was the most woke people on television yeah. or that, like, young queer Lena, people don't make jokes. Lena Dunham didn't kill jokes in comedy. I think that what you're really getting at is this kind of yes. sense of Lena Dunham and the, the young woke women. They killed the jokes in comedy. Those those young, diverse people, they came right. in with their their love of girls which was like an extremely white not diverse show and they killed comedy and it's like no that just was the popular ascendant form of comedy at the time multicam sitcoms were on the outs for quite a while and are only just having a bit of a resurgence and even this show reboot is a single cam sitcom about the making of a multicam sitcom Right. And look at something like Los Spookies. That show, you know, is almost all people of color and, you know, young people, queer people. And it's just a joke machine. It's joke after joke after joke. You know, I I I just really am bothered by this assumption. Um, uh, Black people are funny. Gay people are funny. Sorry, Stephen Levitan. You should hire them. Uh, It just it really bugs me. Well, I think it really speaks to one of the other lingering concerns I have about the writer's storyline or or just Mm. something about it that really strikes me as uh, not true and not developing into anything that's going to prove itself to be true or funny. So I'm I'm worried that I'm going to feel like we've wasted a lot of time on this side of the story. And that's that I don't understand the show Hannah is trying to make beyond the pilot. The pilot, I understand. She's taking the the original sitcom, which was based on her father's second family, and she's adding the twist at the end that her, the the first family returns, and she gets her you know vengeance in a way, but in an artistic way by uh, showing the fake the the artifice of the original show. I get that, and that's really powerful and interesting in the pilot. 
And then as soon as we get to episode two, I have zero idea what her vision for this show is, and I have no idea how anyone, even the joke executives at Fake Hulu, would have ever greenlit this show with nothing else to go on beyond the pilot. People who are far more famous in the real world than her character is as a writer in this world get fired from deals if they cannot produce where where is this going? Because now the cast is there. The money is being spent. You're telling me they don't have any other scripts to shoot, but the cast is there hanging out on set doing God knows what after they finish shooting the pilot. It's the, the, obviously you don't always show the, process as it really happens you know 30 rock and the girly show was not a super accurate representation of how saturday night live was made however it lived in a reality that made some sense for it whereas this i i don't know what the show is i don't know when when she brings in these young writers i have no idea what perspective she's trying to give and so then when gordon her father says your ideas are bad and they're not funny me as an audience member i do have to agree with him which is part of the framing problem here because I think the older writers who wrote Reboot, Stephen Levitan and co, don't understand this newer form of comedy. And so all they know is that there are these young people shows that come in and have these uh, dramatic dark twists in a 30-minute comedy, but it's not punchline, it's not haha, and I don't get it. And so, you know, Hannah's there trying to make a show that... I, the audience, don't get because the people writing her character don't get. And so uh, that I really worry about because it just shows a lack of understanding of the the main character, so to speak, the person who is the engine of the show, like the person for who who kicks off the entire story. Yeah, that's really well said. And I hadn't thought about that. But now that I do, yeah, it it doesn't really make sense that they would be making these at the same time that no. they wouldn't have at least had like arcs for the characters for a season i mean usually now when you have these kind of meetings they want you to have like a you know a pitch deck with the five yeah. <laughs> season arc yeah, you know and they, they would have done a writer's room there would have been many more steps and they could have found ways to to you know condense that or simplify it for a tv audience but you would not you, it's the double uh, angle of you wouldn't be writing episode two while the cast is sitting around having just wrapped episode one. There's an, and 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 also the second angle of she doesn't even have an idea for episode two. There yeah. at no point does she even pitch a single plot beyond the uh, the pilot of the the show. I just I so there's something so empty about her uh, character. In otherwise a very interesting character whose motivation seems so clear and juicy in the pilot, it's just as soon as we get to episode two, we're missing this huge, important part of her. And so I don't understand what what she wants the show to be. And then I side with him sometimes because at least he's pitching something. His jokes are dumb. Popcorn coming out of the washing machine. Terrible idea. But she does not pitch an alternative. Yes, I think her character has some major issues and I hope they address it and I I'm not sure that they will. I'm not sure. Either. I think what works in the show is working and I also think that part of this is that Stephen Levitan has an axe to grind about comedy and what's good and what's not um and that his perspective is the show's perspective unfortunately. So yeah, I, I just I can still see the show really hitting. And I think one of the ways that it will is that 
it seems like it could be cross-generational successful. Um, though, you know, I do think there will be some problems with it, people who are annoyed by it. But at the same time, if you have me laughing a few times an episode, I'm going to keep watching. Same. And I had some moments where I truly laughed out loud while watching the episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the cast is stacked. They are so much fun to watch. And the, the jokes that they are given are good jokes for the most part. But not the, the story and the characters. There's some real questions there. And that uh, is something that will affect the show's longevity and, and its ability to kind of play out a, a second or third season, I think. Yeah, they should hire some queer women of color and make this show really good. Just an idea. We just have it ideas can be old. here. I know he likes old people. Hire old queer women of color. <laughs> I'm sorry, old women getting hired in Hollywood? That's not, it's not allowed. As, <laughs> oh, as, Judy, as Judy Greer's character will tell you, not yeah. allowed. That, you know, just to end on a high note. Judy Greer, an American treasure. There, there is a scene in one of these episodes where she's just carrying an armful of spanks, and eventually she addresses this in in a, a, a second scene right afterwards. But I love the the thoughtfulness of Judy enters carrying an armful of spanks, and you're like, she's gonna nail that, and God, she does. She really does. She's fantastic. And just more and more leading roles for her, please. Yes, all the time. Well. Who do you want to see in a leading role, listener? Who's the Judy Greer of your cinematic life who has been just criminally denied that excellent, excellent leading role? You tell us. You email us, podcast at streamageddon.com. We'll talk about it here on this show. But uh, until then, Diane, you know what you should do? Keep streaming. What, how, how, what is, how do you make stars look worse?